sing my way through it. Are we good? Yes, we're good. I always prepare for the microphone to just not work when I come up here. It's like, we're just not going to, I'm just going to talk out loud. So I just had a conversation with Irvin Yang. Irvin asked me the poignant question, why do you wear a sweater when you're going to preach knowing that you're going to like sweat <laughs> the entire time? And I was like, it's cold outside. I can't like, I'm not going to sweat outside. So we came up with like a whole plan of action of like, maybe I can bring a change of clothes when I come. So yeah. That was very, very uh, thought-provoking for me when he asked me that question. Um, my name is Jalen Baker. In case you don't know me, I serve as a pastoral resident here, and it is always an honor and privilege to preach before God's people. This morning, we are visiting our one of our core identities, seeking justice and mercy, right? And this, is a, this is an intense core identity because it's an intense topic. Um, so... I want to name that, I want to own that this morning as we dive into it, but I also want to name how the people of God have such a unique calling to be advocates for justice, to be people of justice, because we serve a God of justice. The question becomes, what does that look like, particularly what does it look like in our contemporary moment and in our contemporary society? So we're going to dive into that today. Before we do that, let's go to God in prayer. Dearly, Father, thank you so much for the gift of your church, for the gift of your people, for the gift of your word. God, this morning, I pray that, I, that, that you just hide me behind your cross. I pray that your Holy Spirit takes over this, 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 this teaching, this sermon, God, and that you speak through me and speak for me, God. God, we're thankful, so thankful for revelation. We're thankful for the universal truths of your word, God, that can apply to every single thing in our in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Seeking justice and mercy. You know, I think one of the hardest questions that the American church, American churches, are dealing with right now is how can we engage with issues of social justice in a way that honors the Bible? Put differently, what does a biblical theology of justice look like? And how does one embody such a theology? We live in a moment where our politics is so tribalistic, it's extraordinarily polarizing, and this question can be tough at times for us as Christians because it's such a political question. And we tend to let our politics inform or influence our theology rather than letting our theology inform or influence our politics. So here at Jacob's Well, we are a Bible-believing church. We are a gospel-centered church. We are a people of the book. So the question becomes, what does the book have to say about social justice? What does the book have to say, how does it speak into problems of racism, problems of sexism, problems of systemic injustice? That's why we're here this morning. And I have to say, this is a deeply complicated question, so I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers. I'm not going to pretend like we have all the answers as a church. But we've been doing a lot of work as a staff and as an elder team this last year, and we want to roll some things out. We want to roll some of the things out that we've been talking about that we've, that, we've been, that we've been studying so that we as a church can begin this process of really thoughtfully engaging with issues of justice. All right, this is a tangential point. So I feel like in the last month or so, we've really become like a slideshow preaching church. And I am not really on board with this, if I'm being honest, but I've been peer pressured into doing it. So I have slides this morning. You know what I'm saying? So we're going to see how it goes. We're going to see how it goes. We're going to see how it goes. I, I feel like this is going to be fascinating. All right, so here's how we're going to, here's why we want to do this. Let's, let's go to that first slide, Mike. So we've talked about, as a church, as a staff, how can we begin to build out a theology of justice, right? So we, we've, 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 we've been engaging with this thing that we call the ortho paradigm, right? There's three things. Orthodoxy, orthopathy, orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right believing. Orthopathy, right feeling. Orthopraxy, right doing. Now, 
I believe this is really helpful to us, especially as Christians, right? Because when we're dealing with circumstances in our lives, what I think we can tend to do is we can jump to how we feel or we jump directly to action, right? Like, what can I do about what's going on in my life? Or we can dwell here. It's like, this is making me feel so X, Y, Z, right? But we tend to forget this, right believing, right? And I think the ideal thing for us to do as Christians is to always start here. This is basically saying, what is God saying? What are the promises of God? What are the teachings of Jesus? And we have to allow our theology, our orthodoxy, right believing to influence how we're feeling. Because when I remember what God has said, that's directly going to impact how I feel about what's going on in my life. And now that my emotions are in check, now I'm level-headed in what I'm going to do and how I'm going to actually carry out what God calls me to do in his word. Now, when it comes to social justice, right, I feel like we're all over the map here. Some of us may jump right to feeling. Some of us might jump right to doing. And some of us might obsess over orthodoxy, right? But there has to be a healthy balance in all of these. And it always has to start with the word of God and having that inform all of these things, right? So we're going to dive a lot into orthodoxy this morning, and at the end, we'll get, we'll get a lot into the orthopathy and orthopraxis. So let's start with orthodoxy, right? Let's go to the next slide, side. Next, next slide, Mike. So our foundation, right? So the foundation for a biblical theology of justice is the Imago Dei. This is our foundation. What is the Imago Dei? The Imago Dei is a Latin translation for the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, God made humanity in his image. Now let us make all of humankind in our image. What does this mean? It means that when God decided to create humanity, he decided to create them in such a way that humanity would resemble who he is. And I have to say, church, this is very unique given the context of in which Genesis 1 was even written. Because in the ancient Near Eastern context, the other creation stories involved a deity, some kind of God, creating humanity just for humanity to be a slave to that God just for humanity to be a servant to that God. But, 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 but this, 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 this unique God, Yahweh, Elohim, this God said, I'm going to do something radically different. I'm going to create humanity in such a way that they're going to resemble who I am. They're going to have characteristics like me. They're going to be logical like me. They're going to have a moral code like me. They're going to be able to enter into relationships governed by love and commitment like I can. They're going to be able to express themselves through art in all kinds of ways and express in beauty and express art in ways that in beautiful ways like I, like, like, like I did in creation because they're going to resemble who I am. This is the Imago Dei, and this is the uniqueness of our God. And the important thing here is God didn't just create some folks in his image. He created all people in his image. Not just some people, but all people, right? And this is important because when sin enters into the picture, right, when humanity rebels against God, when we disobey God, go against his plan, go against his will, sin enters into our hearts. It corrupts our soul, and it begins to create these dividing lines between all of humanity. Now we begin to see some folks are not going to say, no, we're better than you are. We're more worthy than you are. You're inferior to us. And this is how empires are built. This is how corrupt governments are, this is how corrupt governments happen. Because when sin enters into the world, the Imago Day begins to be distorted. It's distorted by injustice. It's distorted by discrimination. 
It's distorted by painful and harsh experiences that try to get people to believe that you are less than. And that was not God's original intention. So the question becomes, what can we do as Christians who live in a sinful world to restore the Imago Dei, especially in those who have had it stripped from them by a world that hates them, that despises them because of their race, their gender, their class, their immigration status, right? How do we restore that Imago Dei? I find it interesting. It's uh, February, so it's Black History Month. I always find myself going through some facts and remembering things during this month. I was reminded this week how in the 1800s, British missionaries would go to the Caribbean islands to evangelize, to, ens to enslave Africans. Let's go to that next slide, Mike, real quick. And what was fascinating about this church is that they would evangelize to these enslaved Africans by giving them a heavily edited version of the Bible, right? They called it the so-called slave Bible. You know what they would do, church? They would take out passages that they thought would spark rebellion in the enslaved. So any passage that they believe would give the enslaved motivation to rebel against their circumstance, rebel against their condition, they took it out. So they took out Exodus, right? When God overthrew an entire empire because they were enslaving Israel. They took out a passage, passage like um, there, is no, there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free. There is no male or female. We're all one in Christ and Galatians. Took that kind of thing out, right? And it said that, it, it actually said that they took out 90% of the Old Testament, right? So heavily edited Bible. But you know what, Pastor Obed? They forgot to take out Genesis 1. They didn't take out Genesis 1. And you know, you know why this is interesting, church? Because, and let's go to the next slide, Mike, real quick. I want to show it to you. Here it is. Genesis 1, 26. And God, and God said, let us make in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over fish over the sea and over the fowl of the earth and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So the enslaved would read this Bible and on its, first on, on its first pages, they would say, huh, the God who you're trying to get me to believe in, it says here that he created all human beings in his image. So you mean to tell me that you're trying to call me a slave? You're trying to call me inferior? But the Bible that I'm reading is telling me that I was created in the image of an almighty God. So what happens here, church, is that the enslaved is able in these moments, when they read the scripture, they're able to construct a theology of affirmation. They're able to construct a theology of human dignity. They're able to tell their enslavers, you're lying to us. You're not telling the truth. How can you if you claim to be a Christian and serve this God who made us, me, in his image? They forgot to take out Genesis 1. What a grave mistake. And, 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 and this, this, this planted seeds of affirmation, this planted seeds of self-advocacy in the enslaved, to, to the point to where they said, you may call yourself a Christian, but you don't serve this guy. You may call yourself a, 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 a follower of Jesus, but you can't serve the father of Jesus because his father said, I'm like him. His father said, I saw fit to create all humanity in my image. In Genesis 1, we get the source of human dignity. We get the source of why all life matters, why all life is deserving to be protected, why all life is deserving to be affirmed as the Imago Dei, right? This is very, very important. And when we get away from this, when we begin to look 
at humanity with, a, with an indifference. We're getting away from getting, we're getting away from looking at humanity the way God sees humanity. So when injustice happens and we fold our arms and we say, oh well, it happens. Nope. A sinful world is distorting the image. It's distorting the imago Dei that is inherent within the person that has just been a victim of injustice. Our hearts agree every single time because the imago Dei matters, right? And I think what this comes down to for us too, church, is that when we think about sin, right? Let's go to that next slide, Mike. When we think about sin, I think that when, we, when we're talking about justice and injustice, we have to have a more expansive uh, uh, understanding of what sin is. This is Dr. Dennis Edwards. He went to Cornell. Scott wanted me to say that. <laughs> he went to Cornell. Smart guy. But I want to listen to his words here, right? He says, we've been taught that sin's enslavement was evident only in our shortcomings, our failure to measure up to a holy standard because we keep missing the mark. That, raise your hand. That's how you talk about that. That's sin, right? Raise your hand. That's sin right there. That's good old evangelical sin right there, baby. But watch this. But sin is more than this. It goes beyond our personal failures and shortcomings. Sin is an all-encompassing, cosmos-permeating, creation-destroying force animated by Satan. Satan be out here lying, y'all. He be out here planting lies within all of creation, saying that you should, you, you should fight for, for a society of where, where, where people can, can, can get ahead. And these people have to look like you. They have to believe like you. They, they, they have to agree with you all the time, right? Satan plants these kind of lies all over the place. Sin is the evil that infiltrates the entire world. It energizes oppressive structures like fascism, racism, and patriarchy because sin in all its evil ways enslaves humanity, which is why humanity needs a savior, a savior that can set them free. Amen. And I love what Edwards does here because he's saying that it's not an either or, it's a both end. Yes, sin is evident in our shortcomings. It is evident in our failures. But we have to realize that the failures of human beings, the shortcomings of human beings, right, can result in a broken system that oppresses other human beings, right? We have to realize that the individual actions can actually build up amongst people when they're creating systems, when they're creating structures. And this is why you get racism. This is why you get patriarchy, right? Because of sin. Sin that has corrupted the human soul. Sin that has corrupted our minds, right? So when we talk about systemic injustice, it's not a woke issue. It's not a political issue, even in a sense. But for us as Christians, it's a sin issue. It's a sin issue. And when we think about Jesus, right, and how Jesus said, I've overcome the world, I've overcome sin, right? Jesus is saying that I brought the solution to overcome racism. I brought the solution to overcome patriarchy because when you believe in what I'm saying, when you follow my teachings, you're going to love and not hate. My, I, I, I'm going to transform your heart. I'm going to transform form your mind to where you won't believe in these things anymore. And this is why the gospel is important. This, and you know, I'm going to say something that's a little, this is why evangelicalism and evangelizing becomes a social justice issue, right? Because when I evangelize and I tell folks about who Jesus is, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm telling them about his teachings, I'm telling him about his word, and they begin to believe in what he's saying then those people's hearts will be changed. And their capacity to oppress because of sin decreases because their hearts and their minds have been changed. 
Jesus said, I can set you free from these structures. And I think this is twofold, right? It's twofold because Jesus sets us free from our sinful nature, and he also sets us free from the world's definitions of us. Right? So, so, so if you're a part of a mar- historically marginalized group, just like those enslaved Africans in the Caribbean, just like enslaved Africans even in this country, we are able to have a freedom that comes from our spirituality, that comes from, that comes from what God says about us and not what the world says about us. We're able to live not in the lies the world says about us, but in the truth that God says about us. Right? That's a freedom that we have access to. And it's interesting, too, because when we think about sin and connecting it to, to systemic injustice, I feel like the, the question can linger. Yeah, but does God actually address this in the Bible? I see the stretch you're making. I see how sin can show up in these systems. But does God actually address it? I, you know, that's a phenomenal question. Let's see what God says. Let's go to Amos. We're going to go to Amos, what, 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 uh, what Rachel just read. Let's go to Amos. Amos 5, 11 through 14. Watch this. Watch this. Now, Amos is a prophet of God. And one thing prophets did, church, was they would establish and remind people of the ethical and moral code of God, right? They would remind Israel in particular these are the ethics of God. These are the morals of God. And I need you to get back on track, right? That's what a prophet, prophet would tend to do. Look at what Amos says. Look at what God says through Amos. He says that you levy a straw tax on the poor and, compo- and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Let me go back to the top. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax grain and impose a tax on their grain. That's a systemic critique. God did not name not one individual when he said that. He named a system. This system that you've created is unjust. There we go. He doesn't name individuals. Oh, it's too loud. It's too loud, too loud, too loud, too loud, too loud, too loud. We good? Verse 11, he doesn't name individuals. He names a system. You've created tax codes. You've created tax laws that exploit the poor. This is what you've done, right? God is making a systemic critique. I told y'all. Systemic injustice ain't woke. It's God. Systemic injustice, ain't, it's not MSNBC. It's theological. Right? God is naming it here. You have created a system that is distorting the imago day of my children. Stop. Stop. Verse 12, for I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. You see what he did? He named systemic injustice, and what does he call it? He calls it a sin. See, this is what we have to do, church. We have to learn to apply our Christian language to worldly problems. We have to learn to diagnose the world and injustice through the lens of our Christianity. That's what God does here. It's systemic injustice, which means what? It means it is a sin. Call it what it is, right? That's what God calls it. Verse 12, there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Another system. Another system, y'all. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times for the times are evil. So the prudent here refers to There are those who want to speak out against injustice, but the conditions and the culture of the place is so evil that when they speak out, they're silenced. They're thrown in jail, right? That's how evil the times are. So God says this, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Live. Live in a spiritual sense, 
an eternal sense. And also, you know, it's, oh, God live in a sense where if y'all don't change, I might have to make some changes around here. Y'all know how God can be. God can wipe some folks out. He can. You know, he's a God of justice. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Right? I want to jump to verse 21 to make this point even clearer. Verse 21. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your symbols are a stench to me. My God. Sunday morning, when you come up in here, God is saying, I hate that. When you sing songs of worship, it stinks to me. Bold language, right? But again, it forces the issue. I hate injustice. I hate it with a burning passion. Right? I hate it. Even though you bring burnt offerings to me and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I, have, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your song, I will not listen to the music with your hearts. 24, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Until you establish justice, systemic justice, fair and righteous systems, I will not accept your worship and I will not accept your songs. I'm going to hate them, right? I don't say this church to shame us into doing anything. I say this to force the issue that we serve a God of justice, that we serve a God who cares deeply, 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 deeply about systemic injustice, right? And since we serve this kind of God, it begs the question, who are we called to be as God's people, right? So right belief, right orthodoxy teaches us that when God created humanity in his image, he created humanity to, 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 to live in a fair and just society where all people have the opportunity to complete their divine imperative and rule over the earth. He created humanity in such a way that says that I'm going to give all people a divine destiny and a divine purpose to fulfill my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And injustice should never get in the way of that. It should never get in the way of it, right? And when it does get in the way, we as God's people are called to fight against it. We're called to seek justice. We're called to speak out. We're called to get into what Senator John Lewis likes to call good trouble. So now the question becomes, how do we do this? What does this look like? And for that question, we're gonna go to our savior. Let's go to John chapter eight, verse two. We're gonna read verse two through 11. John eight, verse two through 11. I just want to pause and tell y'all, I told y'all this microphone was going to go out. I told y'all. John verse 2, John, verse, John chapter 8, verse 2 through 11. Mm-mm-mm. I love this, y'all. I'm, I'm getting excited thinking about it. Look at, what, look at what happens here. Verse 2, it says, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing in the sand with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and rolled down on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away at one time, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. 
Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What's going on here, church? So the Pharisees, teachers of the law, catch a woman in adultery. Now here's what's interesting. The law demands that both parties caught in adultery should be brought and killed, right? That's what the law demands. Leviticus 20.10 demands that. Interestingly enough, they only bring the woman to Jesus. So we have this fascinating moment where Jesus is not only coming into contact with the woman who is in need of salvation, he's also coming into contact with the woman who has been victimized by a patriarchal system, right? A woman that has, that, that, that has not been given the benefit of the doubt the same way a man has. The man gets to live, but Jesus is this woman though. She has to die. So it's interesting, right? So we, we, we get to see Jesus quite literally respond to a system that is oppressing a woman in the here and now. So what does Jesus do? I, lo I love this, y'all. I love it. Verse, let's go to verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing them. So they bring the woman to Jesus. They're trying to trap him. What is the first thing he does? He bends down and started to write his finger on the ground. Now, this didn't happen. I don't know if this happened or not, but using my spiritual imagination, my God, I see the Savior bending down and saying, hey, hey, sister, it's me and you. We're here. I see you in this moment. I see what they're doing to you. I know what's happening here, right? And I just want you to know that I'm with you. I'm not leaving your side here. I'm about to show them who I am. And what does he do next? I see this, the Savior, he says, in verse 7, they kept on questioning him. He straightened up. Woo! He got up, y'all. He got up. And what does he say? He says, uh, let me read it, let me read it, let me read it. He straightens up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped back down, dropped the mic. Literally, he dropped the mic. If any of you have ever sinned, if any of you have ever made a mistake, throw a stone at her. Y'all do it. And they're like, oh, my God. If any of you have ever broken the law, if any of you have ever sinned in any way, throw a stone at her. Do it. Let me see you do it. And you know what they do? They walk away. They walk away. And I love this because after Jesus drops the mic, he stoops back down. And he says, see, I told you. Didn't I tell you I had your back? Didn't I tell you that I was with you? Didn't I tell you that I was about to show you and them who I am? I'm the Savior. I'm the one that's going to be your supreme advocate in every single moment. Right? They walk away. And I love this, too, because Jesus... He doesn't let her get away without the sin. He said, now, 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 now. The sinning has to stop, right? You cannot continue to live a life of sin. Why? Because you're the Imago Dei. My father created you in his image, right? There's so much life in you. There's so much purpose in you. And if you continue to sin, you're not going to be able to live that life. So please, woman, leave this place alive. And I want you to go and sin no more. Jesus tells that patriarchal system that you will not harm this woman today. He tells those sexist men you will not harm this woman today. That's what he does, right? He comes face to face with the system and he advocates. He rises to the occasion and he protects that woman. He advocates for her because she is the Imago Dei. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Tyree Nichols last week and the sad, but yet normal story in American life 
that black and brown folks are routinely harassed, bullied, and even killed at times over routine traffic stops. Speeding, broken tail light, all, this, all, all the things, right? And, it, and obviously every case is different, but too many times the person's unarmed, the person is just, again, breaking a traffic law. And it oftentimes in, it oftentimes has a tragic end. So I imagine police officers bringing a, bringing a black or brown person to the feet of Jesus and saying, hey Jesus, this person sped, broke the law. They also had an attitude, right? They, 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 they talked back to me. They didn't obey my exact commands. So therefore, I feel like because I'm a police officer, I have every right to punish them how I see fit. They tell Jesus this. And I see the Savior, the same Savior that, 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 that talks to this woman here. I see the Savior stoop down and tell that black and brown person, I'm here, I'm right here with you. Rises back up and says to the police officers, hey, have you ever spared before? Obviously, yes. Have you ever been, 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 been accused of something by someone, didn't like it, and because you didn't like it, you talked back. You were a little belligerent, you are a little rebellious. Because what they accuse you of, you totally disagree with. They probably would say, yeah. Yet here you stand, alive, not beaten, not bruised, not dead. So therefore, if you get to live, so does my child here. That is the Jesus posture. Routine traffic stops should never end in a violent way. Obviously, nuance is there, but too often times. And, and, and let's be honest, routine traffic stops without white brothers and sisters never, hardly ever end in harassment, brutality, and showing of death. Why? Because they're routine traffic stops. They're not meant to end that way. So the Jesus posture is to say that we are to seek justice, and what's our other core identity? Mercy. Have mercy. Have grace, right? This is the Jesus posture, right? It is a call for us to advocate when we see something is wrong, right? John Lewis said that he said that when you see something that is not right, when you see something that is not that is, that, that, that is unjust, right? You gotta speak up. You have to say something, you have to do something, you have to get into what he called good trouble. Lewis, a Christian, was looking at the life of Jesus. Jesus knew that when he made the Pharisees and the religious leaders mad, that it was gonna ultimately lead to his death. He knew that by making them angry, it was gonna make them target him. Did he care though? Absolutely not. Because the Imago Dei means too much. Human life means too much. So he advocated. He advocated. I want to um, give you another example, I guess a more contemporary example of a Christian movement, right? I was thinking this week about the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. In 1950, oh sorry, in 1955, the Montgomery bus boycott was started and it was a boycott aimed to integrate American society so that everyone can have equal justice under the law. I want to read to you some of King's words here. I want to read you this because the civil rights movement obviously is known as starting in the black church, right? It's known to be a Christian movement. And I, and, and I want to read you these words and talk about it a little bit after. So this is Dr. King. So this is the opening address, right? So this is how the Montgomery bus boycott starts in Montgomery. And scholars would also say that this is how the civil rights movement started. This was the opening address for the civil rights movement. So this is just an excerpt from this, from, from, from what King is saying, but I'm gonna read it for you real quick. This is Dr. King's words. He says, and you know, my friends, there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time, 
my friends, when people get tired of being plunged across the abyss of humiliation, where they experience the bleakness of nagging despair, there comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amid the piercing chill of an alpine November. There comes a time. So that's why we're here. We are here this evening because we're tired now, and I want to say that we are not here advocating violence. We've never done that. I want it to be known throughout Montgomery and throughout this entire nation that we are a Christian people. We believe in the Christian religion. We believe in the teachings of Jesus. The only weapon we have in our hands this evening is the weapon of protest. That's all. That's all we got. And let it be known, church, that we are not wrong. We are not wrong in what we are doing. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court of this nation is wrong. If we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer that never came down to earth. If we are wrong, justice is a lie and love has no meaning. And we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Those are King's words. Now, I say this because I'm not looking for anybody here to start a movement. But I want to show you how there was, that we have a great cloud of witnesses in our Christian tradition that has viewed the fight for justice through the lens of their Christianity. Matter of fact, their fight for justice would not have been had if not for their Christian religion, right? King, in that last line, what does he do? He quotes Amos. We are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. So for King in the civil rights movement, they felt like they were an Amos-type figure telling America that you are unjust, and God hates injustice. We claim to be this Christian nation. How can we be a Christian nation if we're committing injustice, right? I say this to say that in our Christian devotional lives, the challenge this morning, seeking justice and mercy, is for us to find out what is our role in advocating for justice. Because here's the thing, evil exists in the world. Let me put it in a smaller way. Evil exists in our local context. Systemic injustice exists right where you are, right? Racism, sexism, all of the injustices you, all the injustices you probably can think of exist in our local context. They're in our schools. They're in our local politics. They're, in, they're at our jobs. They may be in our homes. It exists. And it does not exist because we are these inherently hateful, evil people. It exists. Why? Because sin exists in the world. Sin exists in the world. And because sin exists, systemic evil will also exist. So the question becomes for us, how can we become aware enough to advocate for justice right where we are, at our jobs, in our homes, at our schools, right? A prayer that came to mind this week for, 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 for us church is, Lord, open my eyes to see the systemic injustice that is around me. And I know that there's going to be this pushback, right? Why do you want us to go looking for injustice? Why do you want us to go looking for problems? Because someone's life is being deeply impacted by them. Someone is a victim of those problems. And as Christians who are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to be on the front lines and say, no, you have human dignity. No, your life matters immensely. Why? Because the God of the universe said so. So because you are my fellow brother and sister, 
whether you're a Christian or not, I have a duty and obligation to fight for you, to advocate for you, because I serve a God of justice. Just like Jesus did. Jesus didn't know that woman from yesterday. They just literally brought her to her, to him, right? Jesus didn't know that woman. Didn't know if she was saved or not. But what he saw was a victim of systemic injustice. And he said, no, 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 no. Not on my watch. I have to do something. I have to say something. Lord, allow me to see the systemic injustice that is around me. And I want to say this too, church. Some might say, you know, Jalen, I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to sound bad, but I'm a little indifferent. You know, I, 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 I struggle to care the way I should. Here's the thing, right? The prayer then is, Lord, meet me where I am. And Lord, allow injustice to be a stench to me the same way it is to you. The way injustice stinks, the way it reeks to you, Lord, because I love you deeply, because I follow you, because I trust you, allow it to stink to me too. Start there. Because here's the thing, church, God meets us right where we are. God knows that we're imperfect. God knows that we're sinners. So now it's incumbent on us to pursue God and to pursue justice so that he can reveal to us what we're called to do. But it starts with orthodoxy, right? It starts with right believing. What's the right belief? We're all the Imago Dei. Systemic injustice is real. Not just because I said it. Not just because Rachel Maddow says it. But because God says it. God says it, right? So therefore, we have to believe it. And here's the thing, church. In D course, Rachel and I taught Social 2 and we, we wrote this out um, more extensively and exhaustively. One of the things we said, and I think this landed with everybody in the room, was this is not a prayer muscle that we're used to working out, right? Asking God to show me injustice in my community and on my job? When have, I've, have I ever prayed that before in my life? No, not really. But that doesn't mean that you can't start, right? And, see, and, and, and this is where we are as a church. We are at the starting phase of truly trying to live out this core identity, seeking justice and mercy, right? So you're not alone. We're all there. We're all at that starting place. We all gotta start somewhere. But the key for us right now in this season is starting, is beginning, is taking the step. And as we take these initial steps, what God's going to do, he's going to reveal how we as a church are supposed to seek justice and mercy. He's going to reveal how we as leaders are supposed to lead you and guide you in seeking justice and mercy. And then he's going to lead you to go out into your communities, to go out into your homes, to go out into your jobs, and to actually pursue and seek justice and mercy. That's how it's gonna work. I believe this. It's my tradition. This is where I come from, right? I come from a people that sought justice and mercy in, in, in the face of lynching, in the face of brutality, in the face of it all, they still marched on. And I want to say this too, I almost forgot, Lord have mercy. This is the last thing I say and then we're done. The Montgomery Boys Boycotts, right? So. They stopped taking the buses, church. They stopped taking the buses for over a year, which means that they did not have a ride to work, didn't have a ride to, 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 to school for their children, but they stopped to prove a point to the city that we're not going to give you any of our money as long as you're, as long as you're implementing these unjust laws. But, but, but get this, church, orthodoxy. God says that I will never leave you or forsake you. God says that I will provide your every need. So if, if I'm calling you to take this radical action, believe that I will show up for you. Guess how he showed up, y'all? So black taxi drivers in the, in, in the city of Montgomery, they partnered with local organizers, and they created an intricate system, carpool system, that included 300 cars. 
300 cars. So carpools were taking children to school. Carpools were dropping people off at work. Carpools were taking folks to doctor's appointments. God used his people as a provision so that he could, so that they could carry out his will. God provided. So when God calls you to do something, it might take sacrifice. Loki, it is going to take sacrifice. It's going to take sacrifice, but know that God always provides for his people. He always does it. Can you imagine 300 cars driving around the city of Montgomery? No buses being taken. Because Montgomery is a heavily, it's always been a heavily black populated city. Buses were not being taken, but cars were going everywhere because they were resisting a system. An interview was done with the church mother. They asked her mother, are you tired of walking? Are you tired of not taking the bus? You know what she said? She said, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. <laughs> my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. I might be tired physically, but see, there's a power behind my weariness that's pushing me forward because this is God's work. And until God sees it at sees, sees to it that it's completed, I'm gonna keep on walking. Because God's going to propel me forward. God's going to carry me forward. God's going to give me the strength to keep going. And when I get tired, guess what? I got a carpool. My brother or sister is gonna give me a ride to work. That's God providing. Right? So when we find ourselves being asked by the Holy Spirit, being nudged by the Holy Spirit, hey man, hey sister. Speak up. I'm showing you that injustice because you're my child. You have my spirit. Speak into that injustice. Because when you speak into it, you have a spiritual authority that is needed in this place. It's needed here. So I need you to speak up. I need you to say something. I need you to do something. It's going to get you into a little good trouble. But guess what? You got a care group. <laughs> Got a care group. And, and, and y'all have seen, some of you have seen, how care groups have showed up. When a problem happens, you put it in that little group me, Lord have mercy. People respond. Because that's what the people of God does. That's how God provides. He provides through his church. He provides through his people. He provides in a multitude of ways, right? But this is the call, guys. The call is to advocate. For injustice, wherever we are. And hear me when I say, it's around you. It's right where you are. You ain't got to go. I, I promise you, you ain't got to go too far to look for it. It's right there, unfortunately. But it's the product of living in a sinful world. We live in a sinful world. So therefore, we combat sin with the gospel. We combat sin with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our call. We have been called to advocate, just like our Savior does in John chapter 8. The worship team comes back up. I'm going to lead some prayer, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much, God, for the